Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for um, bringing us all together to worship you. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we can take each week to uh, examine your word and study it and see what you have to say to us. Um, we thank you for uh, this passage here we're going to look at today and the, the hope that you provide. Um, and we thank you for giving us access to have this hope through sending your son to die on the cross for us and to provide salvation for our sins. Uh, we know that we are not worthy of any of what you provide, but that you give it to us freely through grace. Um, we, thank, we thank you for that. We thank you for all that you generously provide for us. Um, pray that we would keep that in mind as we, we look at this passage and we, we would be grateful and we would show that through our generosity um, to others and to you. Um, we just pray that uh, we would just take these words to heart and to uh, help us to remember them and apply them to our lives and that we would live in light of the truth that you share with us through your word. We thank you again uh, for this morning. I pray that you would bless us as we, we study your word now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are in Micah chapter 4 this morning, if you'd like to turn there. But how many of you like to have something to look forward to? You operate on hope. I know personally, I, I need something in my life to, to look forward to. Something that helps me get through the daily grind of the things that we need to do. I need something to look forward to, to keep me motivated, to help me get through the things I don't like. I mean, it could be the next vacation that you're going to take, or the next holiday that's on the calendar, or the next season. I mean, you, part of the way we get through winter is because we look forward to spring, and we know how nice it's going to be, and that helps us get through the miserableness of winter. But I think all people were designed to operate on hope. We need hope. We need hope to get us through the things that are tough. And we can see that when people lose their hope and the devastation that that can bring in people's lives. When you lose your sense of hope, you have nothing to hope in. Well, today we will see where we should place our hope and what we have in store for the future and what Israel in this passage has in store for the future, for something to hope in. And as we have seen so far through Micah, as, as Pastor and Ken ex explain in their messages so far, that there is a pattern that is going on in Micah. There's, it's really a cycle. And it's got three parts. The, the prophet starts by calling the people to repentance. You must repent of your sin or there will be consequences. And then, he predicts that they won't repent of their sin, which they don't. And then he proclaims the judgment that they will receive for not repenting and not living the way God had instructed them in the law. God strictly warned the people in the law, if you do not follow these commandments, there will be consequences. I will remove you from the land. You will go into exile. These things were promised in the law. But 
The cycle always ends on hope. There's a call to repentance, the prediction of judgment, and then the prophet gives the people hope. What we saw of chapters 1 and 2 were a full cycle. That there was a call to repentance, there was judgment, but it ended on hope. Then last week, Pastor did chapter 3, which was the start of a new cycle. There was a call to repentance, and then he went through the things that would happen to Israel because they didn't repent. He spoke, Pastor spoke on chapter 3 last week, and, and we saw the social and economic injustice that was going on in Israel. The reason why God was upset with the leaders of Israel. God held the leaders of Israel responsible for executing justice in their land. And they were failing to do that. They were not upholding justice. They were not righting wrongs. They were not making those who were perpetrating wrongs pay for it. They were committing wrongs themselves. Justice was not found in Israel. God holds the leaders of the land responsible, and there's consequences for it. If you look in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it says, But as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. This is God speaking. I declare to Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. God is saying, I declare justice. I am the one who decides justice, and you are not fulfilling justice. Justice is not being done in Israel. So the leaders, they were not exacting the justice that God wanted, so God stepped in and exacted justice upon them. He declares that in verse 12 that Zion will be plowed like a field and Jerusalem will be a heap of ruin. This is what was happening because they were failing to perform justice. And interestingly, this passage, chapter 3, is used in Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote after Micah, and he was put on trial for saying these same things. And he was going to be put to death. And the thing that got him out of being sentenced to death was the fact that they looked in Micah and said, no, what he's saying is consistent with what Micah was saying. So the point is that they... This was not the only time that the people had heard this. That Jeremiah's life was spared because he was repeating the same message and all the prophets repeat the same message of repentance. Judgment had been pronounced on Israel and they were failing to repent. So last week was the passage on judgment. This was the judgment they were going to receive. And today, that brings us to chapter 4, which is the last part of our cycle, and that is the hope that God gives them. We see a transition. It's a pretty sharp transition. It happens fast. From judgment into hope. One of the themes of Micah, as we've seen, is God is a just God. Which means He doesn't ignore injustice. When injustice happens, He sees it and He remembers it. And God will make those who, who are unjust pay. But also, as a just God, that means He keeps His promises. God promised to have consequences for failing to keep the law. But God also promised blessing upon Israel. 
God promised Abraham that his seed would be blessed forever. His descendants would bless all nations. God promised Israel that they would have the promised land forever. That He was providing them a land to live in. God promised David that he would have a descendant sitting on the throne of Jerusalem forever. So, when we see these judgment passages, God is not turning back on the promises He made. He's actually fulfilling the promises He made. And He's not done yet. He's not done fulfilling His promises. And it's important to note that these events, although they happen consecutively in our text here, it goes from judgment and then the next verse starts the blessing, starts the hope. It's important to note that these events don't happen back to back in history, in time. We know that the judgment has already come upon Israel. They were exiled. They were taken from their land. There, there was disaster and destruction that came on Israel. They were exiled into a foreign land that they didn't know. Many were killed. They were taken from the promised land. And they have not returned to these things that they had. The, the Davidic line of kings, they don't have that anymore. They haven't had that since they were taken from the land. They don't have the land anymore. But then we see in this passage, as we'll read, these things are promised again. So, it would be easy to think that because that judgment already happened, then the blessing must have already started because the judgment is done now. But that's not how it, how it works. Just because the prophets talk of these events in succession doesn't mean they happen quickly. And I've heard it explained before that it's almost like looking at the mountain peaks on a mountain range. That's what the prophets do when they speak prophecy. They see events that are happening in the future. It's like looking at mountain peaks. You can see that there's two mountains there, but you don't know how much distance is in between. You don't know how long the valley is because you don't have the full perspective of time. That's like what's happening here. Micah can see the judgment coming and he can see the blessing that's coming as their hope. But he doesn't give us a time frame of how long it's going to be in between. So that brings us to our passage. In Micah chapter 4, we'll read verses 1-8. through eight. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn any learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. 
and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, you shall come, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So here you see a dramatic shift in the focus. Chapter 3 ends at verse 12 and it's talking about the destruction of Zion and Jerusalem. And then the next verse, it completely shifts to the blessing that will be coming upon Zion and Jerusalem. The hope that the prophet is giving the people. And you see a lot of contrasts between very specific points of references in these two chapters. You see in in chapter 3, verse 12, that Zion and Jerusalem is destroyed and the mountain of the house of wooded heights. So what what he's talking about there is that Jerusalem and the temple are completely destroyed. But then in in chapter 4, verse 1, Zion and Jerusalem and the house of God is rebuilt. You see the wicked leaders in chapter 3 that that God condemns for their injustice. And then you see it contrasted with the Lord reigning on the throne and judging all nations. You see Jerusalem and Zion are established with blood and iniquity in chapter 3. But here in chapter 4 you see Zion and Jerusalem established on God's teaching and walking in His ways. There are many different contrasts here to see, to show us that the, the way things were are not the way that they should be. The, we, the way things were are not the way they're going to be. So let's, let's dig a little deeper into our text here. Let's go to, back to uh, verse 1. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, or another way to say it is in the last days, in the, the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established on the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. People shall flow to it. So this is a prophecy of a future kingdom. Of the future kingdom that is coming. This is the millennial kingdom. The, the new heaven and new earth that are promised in Revelation. And it says, in the last days. So that kind of gives us a clue of to when this will take place. And you know... As we look at the world around us, you can see that everybody desires peace. Peace that will not be interrupted. Peace that is untroubled. And the world tries to make this peace happen by either governing new laws or putting in new programs or establishments that will bring about an untroubled peace. But we can see in this passage that untroubled peace that men hope for will not be attainable by creating a man-made utopia that will bring about what they want. It only comes about when Jesus is reigning and He is sitting on His throne in Jerusalem. It says here the temple will be built upon a mountain. We see in the Old Testament that God's dwelling place, the temple, it was first established when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And this symbolized the throne of King Yahweh among His kingdom people. That's what 
was established and what was symbolized by, by David bringing the Ark of the Covenant. And then when Solomon built the temple, the magnificent building that he built, that was to symbolize God's dwelling place within His nation, within His people. But the time will come when it will be even more exalted. It will, it's called the highest of all mountains. It will be established as above all others. The temple is placed on the highest of mountains so that all have to look up to see it. God has established Himself as above all others and His temple is a picture of that. It also says that many nations will flow to this temple. Many peoples, many nations will flow to the temple of Zion. This is a prophecy of the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's plan. Now there were some non-Jews that did convert to Judaism in the Old Testament, but this says many nations will flow to God's temple. Let's look at verse 2. It says, And many nations shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the many nations will come to the temple, and they will hear God's word. They will come for the purpose of hearing God's word. The law of the land will go out from Zion, from the Lord, from God's mouth. The Lord will rule at this time, and the nations will come to hear what he has to say. As one commenter puts it, just as Israel once traveled the desert, in the desert, to the mountain of God, in order to receive the law, as we see in Exodus 19. The nations now travel on a pilgrimage to the sanctuary of the people of the twelve tribes to the house of the God of Jacob. So, the people traveling to the mountain to hear God's law in the Old Testament is a, like a picture showing what will happen in the new kingdom. Just like in the Old Testament, people go to the temple to worship God. To hear from God. And here, in this prophecy, it includes all nations. The prophet says that Jerusalem will fall in chapter 3, verse 12. But here we see that it will be fully restored. It will be the world's religious capital and learning center. Now some would spiritualize the meaning of this verse to say that Jerusalem no longer refers to an earthly city here. It refers to a heavenly city. But as a commenter named Salehammer explains... He says, in the book of Micah, the visions of destruction have their reference in a literal city of Jerusalem. So by the same token, it seems reasonable to conclude that the visions of restoration of that city are also to be understood within the framework of a literal reference to Jerusalem. There is no reason to suppose that the prophet's description of Israel's future restoration was any less concrete than their description of Israel's destruction. So what he's saying is, the destruction that the prophet foretold the people understood that he was talking about Jerusalem, the city. So there's no reason to think that he changed the meaning of what he was saying when he says Jerusalem will be reestablished as the capital of the new kingdom. This is a real earthly city. This is a real earthly kingdom. Jesus is coming back to earth to reign from the capital city of Jerusalem. In verse 3, it says, He will judge between many peoples, and he shall decide for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. So instead of nations going to war with one another, the Lord Himself will decide their disputes. The Lord will judge all nations from His throne. He will decide disputes between all nations. This will result in an unprecedented time of peace. Because the Lord is settling all their disputes, there will be no need for nations to go to war with each other. It even says all instruments of war will be made into gardening tools. That's what this verse is saying. The verse closes with a prophecy that one nation will not use its weapons against another nation. People will not even train for war anymore. You think of our, our military academies, like West Point and all the others we have. There will be no need for these places to train for war. There will be no more war. Instead of learning the art of war, the nations will learn the art of peace. When they all submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, peace will break out. Peace will be the result. This is a description of the Messianic Kingdom when the Messiah is the King and is reigning on earth. But just think of how different the situation will be. We hear from Jesus in Matthew 24 that before the end comes, there will be wars and rumors of wars. And it will be an unprecedented time of war and destruction. And then when He returns, He will usher in a time of unprecedented peace. And just because this is predicted for the future, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything in our power in the meantime to bring about peace as much as we are capable. Jesus says that it's the peacemakers that inherit the kingdom of God. Well, we are God's people. We are the ones inheriting the kingdom of God. We are the peacemakers. We should be seeking peace every way that we can. And although God is the one that will exact His justice upon the unjust, we should seek out justice as much as we can because we're God's people. Let's look at verse 4. It says, They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Here you have an agricultural picture that the prophet's giving. The vine and the fig tree are intended to picture security and prosperity and contentment that God's kingdom will bring. Fear will be a thing of the past. We see that in in Zephaniah chapter 3. There will be no fear in the kingdom. There will be no need to fear in the kingdom. There will be nothing to be afraid of. One commenter says the fig tree... Fig trees were valued for their fruit and their shade. And like the vine, fig trees became a symbol of security and prosperity. There will be no reason for fear in the coming kingdom. Can you just imagine that? There's no reason to fear. Nothing to be afraid of in the kingdom. The Word of the Lord will settle everything. And then peace will follow. Verse 5. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. 
So here he's bringing the attention back to the readers. Back to their time. He's contrasting what they see now versus what will be in the future. The culture they lived in was was polytheistic, meaning they had many gods. There was not one god. There was many gods. They were idolatrous and they were corrupt. But God's chosen people determined are determined to worship and follow their covenant Lord as the one true living God. And because of that, they live a life of faith, faithfulness, obedience, and complete commitment to Him forever. That's the kingdom. This is the future that they, and also we, have to look forward to. This has not happened yet. This has not come yet. Christ is not sitting on the throne. As Kenneth Barker writes, he says, this is how all God's people should live, awaiting the final complete fulfillment of the glorious future promised in verses 1-4. through When God's irresistible kingdom will be ushered in on this earth by Christ the King and will continue eternally on the new earth. These momentous future events should provide an incentive for holy, faithful, and fruitful service in the present. This This is what was missing from the nation of Israel. Holy, faithful, and fruitful service. That didn't characterize the Israelites at this time. This is why they were being judged. This is why they were facing discipline. Because God promised that they would if they didn't live by His law. And Micah is exclaiming to the people, this is the way it's supposed to be. We are God's people. This is how we should be living. But that's not how they were living. Verse 6 says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. So here he's, he starts with in that day. So he's bringing it back to the future he was talking about. Micah is quoting the Lord directly. Meaning he's addressing the nation here. Addressing the nation of Israel. He says, he says, I will assemble the lame. So God's people are portrayed as weak and wounded, scattered sheep, in the exile among the nations. They are without a shepherd. He is the one who, because of their sin, afflicted them and brought them such grief. This was their punishment. This was the consequences for breaking God's law. Is that He dispersed them and wounded them. But, as the good shepherd king, He will rescue them and gather them and restore them. God disciplined His people but He will bring them back one day. God is not done with Israel yet. The best is yet to come for the faithful remnant of Israel. Verse 7, And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them on Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord is going to turn everything around for His people. The lame will become a strong nation again. The ones He disciplined will become great once again. According to Zechariah 14, verse 9, He's not just going to reign over Israel. He will reign over the whole earth. 
The Lord Himself will reign from Zion. Jesus will sit on His throne on earth in Jerusalem and He will rule the nations. And it says He will rule forevermore. There will be no end to unprecedented peace and contentment for God's people. In the last verse 8 here, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those... Oh, whoops, wrong verse. That's 6. Verse 8, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, you shall, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So the Lord, speaking through Micah here, now addresses Jerusalem and its inhabitants. The city of Jerusalem. The Israelites. They are the watchtower of God's flock. That's Jerusalem. The capital city of David, who was the original shepherd king. Jerusalem gives strength and security to the Lord's flock. They are the watchtower. He refers to the former dominion, and he's talking about the glorious past that they had under King David. The time of power and of peace that they experienced under King David and it continued into Solomon. But then as they strayed further from God, it went away. They were a strong and prosperous nation. God was promising that this time will come again. That their dominion will be restored. It will be even better than it was the first time. God is not leaving His chosen people without hope. God is a just God. That's what we've seen throughout Micah. And God's justice means that He will punish evil. And He will punish His covenant people for breaking His law. And that's what He's doing. He's following through on the promises He made in the law. And it mean, His justice means he, he will keep those promises. But God didn't leave His people without hope because He promised to bless them forevermore. God's gracious, gracious salvation of human beings has the last word, not His judgment on human defeats. So as we read this Old Testament prophecy to the nation of Israel, and we see this as a future kingdom, what can we learn from this that we can apply to our own life and our own circumstances? Well, first we can see God has a plan. Micah had just announced the coming destruction for the nation of Israel. Things were going to become terrible for them. And they did. Things were awful. They were ripped from their home. Taken to a foreign land. Many were killed. They were forced to live away from their promised land. They could not experience any of the good things that they had in their homes. In the promised land that God had given them. But God still has a plan. God has a plan for the nation. God is not done working yet. God still had things to do with Israel. That's why He provides hope after destruction. Things are going to get much, much better. And this is something that the people could look back at while they were in exile and see that God still had promises to fulfill to them. We have not seen a promised earthly kingdom of Jesus fulfilled yet. Not in this sense. 
Jesus has come. And He is the Messiah. He is the King. But He's not reigning on earth yet. God is still working His purposes. There is a glorious future in store for all of God's people. God's not done working with Israel yet. God has not forgotten Israel. God has not replaced them in His plan. Israel is still His chosen nation and He has promises yet to fulfill with them. I found this quote from, from Warren Wearsby that really applies well to this passage. As he says, When the outlook is grim, try the uplook. That's a good way to put it. When your situations are looking grim and desperate and you're really feeling down, don't look at your situation. Look to God. What has God promised? What is He still doing? Look up to God instead of looking out at your situation. We see the sin-ravaged world around us and we become discouraged. We're simply longing for the type of world that's described here in this passage. The darkness of this world should motivate us to change what we can. But we need to remember that God has a plan. And God is not done working yet. And there's a glorious future in store for God's people. We can also see what we've seen throughout Micah. That God is just. And that we've seen that this means a few different things. We see it here today as well, even though we're not talking about punishment in this passage. God was punishing Israel for their injustice because He's a just God and He cannot tolerate injustice. So God's justice means He doesn't let wrongs go unpunished. That's what justice is. God's justice also means that He keeps His promises. And that's what He's doing in the destruction passages. That He promised that this would happen if they didn't follow the law. And if they did not obey Him. And He's following through on that. He's keeping His promise. What God promises here in this passage today will happen as well. This should give us even more confidence that because we saw the destruction come just like He promised upon Israel, then that means this coming kingdom will come just like He promised. God will fulfill His covenants with Israel. The covenants He made with Abraham, with David, the land covenant. Those are all eternal promises that will happen. Just because they're not realized now doesn't mean that God has forgotten them or that God is failing to keep them. There will be a messianic kingdom on earth. Jesus Christ will reign from the throne in Jerusalem. Just as God kept His promise to discipline Israel for disobeying Him, He will also keep His promise to bless them because they're His people. And He promised He would. And then also, we know that we're kingdom people. As believers in Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. We are God's children. And we will see the kingdom. The reason Micah contrasted the future kingdom with their current circumstances was to show that things are not the way they should be. They weren't the way they should be in, in Israel. The rulers were unjust. We saw that. But the king in the new kingdom will be just. Israel was not obeying God's commandments. In the kingdom, 
kingdom citizens will obey God's commands. War was everywhere around Israel. There will be no war in the kingdom. There will be no reason to fight in the kingdom. God will settle everyone's differences, everyone's disputes. Israel lived in fear. But there will be nothing to fear in the kingdom. There will be no reason for fear in the kingdom. So, how do we translate that into our world today? Well, the world is still not the way it should be. Everybody would believe, would agree with that. Non-believers, atheists, everyone would say, the world's not the way it should be. There's a lot of things wrong in the world. But we know the day is coming when everything will be made right. Everything will be corrected the way it should be. And as kingdom citizens, we can live like kingdom citizens now. Because that's who we are. We have a citizenship in the kingdom. Although it hasn't been ushered in yet because Christ has not come back. But we're still just as much citizens of the kingdom. Well, how can we do this? Well, we see from this passage that there's justice in the kingdom. So we can seek justice as much as possible. We see that in the kingdom, people come to the temple to hear God's Word and obey it. As kingdom citizens, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be reading God's Word, seeing what He says, and obeying His commands. We know that peacemakers inherit the kingdom of God. And that there will be an unprecedented time of peace in the kingdom. So as peacemakers, we need to make peace. We need to seek out peace as much as possible. Seek to spread peace everywhere we go. You can see that there's worship of God in the temple, in the kingdom. That's what we do as kingdom people. We worship God. When we worship God, we are exercising our citizen rights in the kingdom. And then come to the Lord with our problems. You see that in the kingdom. Everyone came to the Lord to settle their disputes. When we live like the redeemed people that we are, we are living like we are kingdom citizens. We need to live out the identity that we've been given. We are not home yet. We are aliens in this world because we have been given a citizenship in the kingdom. We need to live like we are kingdom citizens. Let's pray. God, we thank You for this passage. We thank You for all that You show us here. The hope that You bring us. The hope that You've promised us by promising the kingdom that's coming. We pray that we would live in light of this and that we would live like we are kingdom people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.